Please remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Colossians, chapter 1. We started a new study last week in Colossians, and so we've just begun, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 14 today. But if you will, let's go back to verse 1 and read through verse 14. Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word, in the, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we come now to your word, your holy word given to us that we may know you Would you open our eyes and cause us to see wonderful things, instruct our hearts. May your words be sweet to our tongues as honey is. Lord, may we delight in your word and find in it hope and joy and purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, as we looked last week, it was... Words of introduction, those words continue for Paul. They're words of a prayer that he's praying for the Colossians. And last week he gave praise for what God had done among them. He acknowledged God's grace and truth and that that was producing in them the faith, hope, and love in these young believers' lives. And now he turns his attention to praying for them. And that's what we see in verses 9 to 14. He shares his requests for the Colossians. And in this prayer, Paul shows us what is really important to pray for, what really ought to drive our prayers for one another. It isn't that we shouldn't pray for health of loved ones or prosperity or success or provision. These are all fine things to pray for. If we're honest, isn't that about all we pray for? You know, the joke is made over and over again. You go into any small group of prayer time in any church in America, and it's typically those are the prayers. And again, there's nothing wrong in praying for those things. But maybe these are the safe things to pray for. Maybe these are the safe things to share. Or maybe, just maybe, they reveal what our hearts really want. That what we really want is health and prosperity and success and provision. 
Yet, what Paul's prayer shows us is there's more and more that matters. There's more to this life. There's more important things than our eyes can see. More vital needs than strong bodies, secure jobs, achievement, and healthy bank accounts. In fact, maybe the opposite is true. Maybe it's when those things fail, that when our bodies are weak or our jobs are in jeopardy or disappear altogether, or striving leads to failure or retirement goes bust, that God meets us with something more. It's not what we want to hear. Certainly not what we pray for. But we see Paul praying for something more than just physical needs for the Colossians. And it's a model then for how we ought to pray for one another. Think of the prayer and who he's praying for. This is a young church, a church plant, a church that as far as we know, he's never met or seen everybody there. He alludes to that later. So this becomes a guide not only to pray for each other at Christ the King, but it becomes a guide for us as we consider praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, for missionaries, for church planters. Paul's thoughts then guide us in in prayer as he prays for them that we would pray for knowledge and spiritual wisdom in order to walk worthy of King Jesus. That's the theme of his verse, this King of kings and Lord of lords that we worship who has rescued us from a domain of darkness and brought us into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. And so let's look beginning in verse 9. He starts off, and the thing that always jumps out is he says, I haven't ceased to pray for you. And you think, oh my goodness, I cease to pray all the time. I do good if I make it through 10 minutes of prayer without falling asleep. Well, Paul is not saying that he prays continually 24 hours a day and never sleeps. But what Paul is saying is that he remembers them as he prays. And it's a good reminder that, one, Paul had a discipline of prayer. I mean, as a Jew, he would have continued to go to prayer three times a day. As a prisoner, he would have been given more time to pray because he had nothing else to do. He was in prison. Sometimes you may feel like you're in prison and you have nothing better to do, and I would encourage you to pray. It may not be the, a jail cell. It may be the prison of a sleepless night where you can't fall asleep, or it may be if you're, if you're sick and, and, and you're, you're in bed for a while, that those are times that we can use for prayer. He prayed more and more as he had the opportunity. And I, I would mention this, that prayer is a ministry. It is a work of ministry. It isn't just asking God for things, but it is actually a way to work and labor on behalf of others before God. The power is not in the work, as with any ministry. The power is in the object of the work to whom we pray. That's where the power is. That's what makes it powerful. But do you consider prayer a work of ministry, a vital use of your time, something that is as valuable as teaching a Bible study or visiting the sick? or anything else that you could plug into a work of ministry, prayer is as valuable as any of those works. We should be thoughtful. We should be disciplined. We should be intentional. And we should be sacrificial, willing to give up the time to pray. And then, as I mentioned uh, last week or maybe a couple weeks ago, we ought to tell people that we're praying for them and how we're praying for them because this is a great encouragement. But let me warn you not to be flippant or even to lie and say, I'm praying for you if you're not. That doesn't do anybody any good. Those are words of comfort, and I've done it 
hundreds of times. I just admitted I, I lied. Your pastor's a liar. I have said I'm praying and I have failed to pray. And I hate that. I forget, I get busy, things slip my mind, I forget to write stuff down. So let me encourage you with something that I don't even remember who taught me to do this, but it's a good discipline. That when you see someone who has a need for prayer, just stop right there and pray with them. There are very few situations in life that would preclude you from doing that. There, there, there are some. I mean, if you're on the job and you're working and you've got customers in front of you, uh, you, know, you probably don't need to stop and pray for somebody. But in, in most situations, it's just very easy to do. It doesn't have to be long. And you can stop and pray for someone right there in that moment. Can I pray for you right now? It's really simple. You can do it here church on Sunday. You can do it you know, outside. You can do it in the parking lot, the grocery store, on the golf course, in the cul-de-sac. When someone has a need, just say, can I pray for you right now? Notice how Paul goes on with the prayer. He says, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This filling that he's praying for speaks to the knowledge that is theirs in Christ. He wants them to know what they already possess in Christ. He's going to pray later that they would continue to learn, and we are all continually learning. We all have a lot to learn. We never stop learning. But because of who Christ is, we have access to knowledge in the gospel that we need to, in essence, be filled with or remember or recall. Because typically when we sin, we're forgetting something. We're forgetting it. We're not laying hold of a truth that we know to be true. We're letting it go and we fall into sin. But we're told in Scripture, because of Christ, we are new creations. The old has passed away and the new has come. We have access to this truth, this reality. In Christ, we see the light of God's glory shining. Because we know who Christ is, we know God's glory. Because of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, called the Spirit of Wisdom in Scripture, within us who gives the, the God, God's knowledge to us by enlightening the, the eyes of our hearts. This is what Paul is praying for, just that we know what we know, that we remember what we know, that we are called back to you know, recount what it is that we've already laid a hold of. And yeah, we grow in knowledge. We continue to grow in knowledge. But remember what Paul's combating here, the Gnostics. Remember, we talked about them a little bit last week, and they were promoting this this kind of pseudo-Christianity where, uh, you know, yeah, Christ is where you start, but then you add to it this other stuff. And some of it was this mystical, special knowledge. And they had become elitists with this. They'd kind of look down on people, which is almost a type of bullying to try and get people to follow into this, what was in essence a cult. Paul is countering this in what he's praying for. He's combating this false teaching. He's been saying you, or he is saying you have been granted God's knowledge in Christ, by Christ's work through the Holy Spirit within you. And I'm praying that you know this, that you be filled with this. So how are you filled with this knowledge? It comes back to meditating on God's scripture, memorizing God's scripture, taking captive your thoughts when you're filled with anxiety or fear or anger or frustration or whatever it is that would lead you into sin. It's taking hold of those truths, coming back to what you already know to be true. And then he adds to that with the knowledge of his will. How many of us have prayed, God, show me your will? This is something we want to know. We want to know God's will for our lives. What is it that he wants? 
It's important for us to know God's will, but a lot of times um, we treat God's will very individually, very individualistically, I should say. We, we treat God's will as it's all about us. It's about our lives. It's about our job, where we go to school, who we marry, what kind of car to buy. This isn't wrong. We should consider God's will for our lives, but it's short-sighted because it doesn't capture all that God is doing. God is doing big things. It just isn't all about you. It's not all about me. It's not all about any of us. He's doing actually much bigger things. And maybe that sounds like bad news, but it's not. Because you matter. God is doing big things, but He includes you as a part of His kingdom. Because you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of the king, you are included in those plans. So God is doing big things. His will are great things. His kingdom is going to be a wonderful thing as it unfolds. And the good news is, He includes you and you matter. He includes your salvation, your calling, your walking in a way that's pleasing to Him, your dying to sin, your sanctification, and so much more. But He also is speaking of His kingdom. The new heavens, the new earth, the bringing in the elect from all nations, the righting all wrongs, the renewing all that is dying, the buying back what has been stolen, the healing what is broken, and on and on. God is doing bigger things. And Paul adds, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here we have more of these knowledge words. It brings to mind, again, the idea of what he's combating with Gnosticism. Wisdom and understanding. He's not promoting a special knowledge as the Gnostics were. He's he's promoting a real knowledge that leads to real transformation. And not to, to skip ahead, but if you just... Remember what he said in the next verse. There was purpose to this. It was very practical, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. It wasn't just for knowledge to puff up. It wasn't just for knowledge to have in our heads. It wasn't just for knowledge so that we could banter back and forth about what something means. It was knowledge that produces fruit, a walk that is worthy of King Jesus. We could say that in order to walk worthy, we need knowledge and wisdom. And it's spiritual knowledge and wisdom, he notes. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. It means that it's not human or fleshly wisdom. Now, a lot of times when we pose human wisdom against spiritual wisdom, we may think things of, in a secular nature. But let me suggest to you that our human or fleshly wisdom, how it manifests itself. The world's idea, I mean, let's not even say the world's idea, let's just say the flesh's idea. How do we naturally respond to problems in life? That shows us what our fleshly wisdom is. Anger, fear, complaining, confusion, vengeance, escapism, uh, despair. That is the way that we naturally respond fleshly to the problems of this life. But Paul is praying that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that when the difficulties of life come, they would react with spiritual wisdom. What does spiritual wisdom look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That is what spiritual wisdom looks like. That's what he is praying for here for the Colossians. And then he gets into the so as to. The whole reason for this is that you would walk in a manner worthy. 
And he unpacks what that looks like. One, it's bearing good fruit in good works. That's what it looks like. And we've already touched on this a bit. Uh, we know that we talk, talked about this, this last week. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not, these works are not meritorious. But our faith does produce works. Good works flow from our salvation. And he says, uh, praying for that they bear good fruit and good works and increase in knowledge. This is where he gets back to that we're growing, that we need to grow, that we never stop learning. And we see this as we study God's Word. How many times have you come to a passage that you've read a dozen times and God illumines your eyes and you see something, wow, I've never seen that before. He then adds, being strengthened for patience and endurance. Endurance is to deal with the circumstances of life. Patience is to deal with the people. We need both. It's not just for flexing. It's not just for showing off. How many times do we see that in the book of Acts? Those miraculous gifts that God uh, gave and, and miraculous works that he did through the apostles. It was never about the apostles. It was never to make them look good. It was always about the glory of God. And the same is true with the spiritual gifts that he's given us including in the general gift that he gives all of us of strengthening us with all endurance and patience. Think of how many times in Scripture we're told to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and He will renew our strength. Wait on the Lord. Psalm 40 is an example. Waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord to deliver. And how the Israelites longed for this. We see this in the story of the Exodus. For 400 years they longed for deliverance. And then we see that theme continue and how we also long for this, but we long with a different hope. He then adds with joy. And Paul's prayer um, was endurance and patience with joy. Now, you may be able to say, yeah, I, I need endurance or I want patience, but this joy thing, that's a kind of a hard combo to put it, you know, it's demanding a little bit too much, you know, that I have to be happy and do it. Well, this isn't some kind of glib happiness or some kind of grin and bear it uh, facade that we put on. Paul is praying for true joy, and I do think it's possible. I think it's possible. But there's, there's, a, there's a specific ingredient, at least that I found from my life, that is, is key to true joy. And he mentions it in the next verse, verse 12, thankfulness. I have found that thankfulness is the antidote to grumbling. That when I find all the wrong things that have gone and are going wrong in my life and all the things that I have to complain about, that what cures that grumbling spirit is to remember all that I have to be thankful for. And then God brings this joy that, again, passes understanding like the peace that passes understanding. There's something incredibly powerful that comes from a heart of thankfulness. Now, it's, it's still hard. It's not, it's not like this, this is a placebo that you just take and it makes all of the problems go away. But it is coming back to a deep understanding of the gospel, of all that God has done, that you who were dead have been made alive, that you who were far off have been brought near, that you who did not have anything have been adopted into a royal family, that you are now called God's own inheritance. All that the gospel is, this incredible gift to us in Christ, make our hearts thankful. Because we know that not only don't we deserve it or we don't deserve it, but what we actually deserve is judgment. 
So from such gratefulness for getting this mercy, then we can be joyful with all patience and endurance. Patience with people, endurance with the situation. And then he unfolds this with an explanation of what the gospel is. It's all rooted in the gospel. This isn't just a matter of willpower, just grin and bear it, go do these things, go be joyful, go be patient, go be thankful. No, it's all rooted in the gospel. Look in verse 12. We have been qualified. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't contribute to it. It was God who qualified us by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, King Jesus. And it's an inheritance, a royal inheritance that awaits us all with a royal feast a repairing of all that is broken, a righting of all that is wrong, a buying back of all that is lost. That is what is waiting for us. And so for this and so much more, we're thankful, and this is what produces joy. In verses 13 and 14, he unfolds that inheritance that we have and describes it in kingdom language. Scholars call this a realized eschatology. Eschatology is that study of end times that we're all afraid to talk about. You know, when someone tells us to explain the book of Revelation or certain chapters in Daniel, um, eschatology, it's the end times, those things. And sometimes for Christian, those things are just so far off that we don't think they matter. And so when we say it's a realized eschatology, it means that it, it matters, and we figured out how it matters, and Paul explains how it matters. We are delivered from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and we have been transferred into this kingdom of Jesus. It is past tense, meaning it has been a securely accomplished. The kingdom's entrance and presence came at the coming of Christ, and the kingdom's power and work is exist, exists in and through Christ's church. This is how God chose to work and to move, through His body, through the church. We're not to be islands to ourselves. We need each other. We need to be together, not only for worship, but in living our lives And we can do more than we can on our own together. Our good works then are not simply attempts at ethics or social justice apart from the kingdom power within Christ's church. The kingdom's message of repent and believe gives hope beyond just doing good works. It gives hope beyond just bringing social justice. The kingdom is both... And we, must, we, we have to guard against this tendency of swinging the pendulum of one side to the other. Becoming evangelists who talk about a far-off hope, but then, in the words of James, tell someone in need, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things their body needs. Or we don't swing the pendulum to the other side and become social justice warriors with no hope beyond the bowl of soup that we just set down in front of the hungry person who will be hungry again in four hours. The kingdom power is expressed most clearly in redemption. And that is the good news of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're proclaiming as we do good deeds. The law and the sacrifices could point to the holiness of God, but neither could atone for sins. Hebrews 10.1, For since the law has but, but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It couldn't do it. We needed the perfect sacrifice 
to atone for our sins. And that is exactly what Jesus did. And in Hebrews 9, as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And so because we belong to King Jesus and are now out of the darkness and in the kingdom of light, we can now walk in freedom. There are echoes of Exodus in this idea of transfer that we have been delivered from the slavery that is pictured in the Exodus and we have been brought into the promised land that is the new kingdom. It's yet to be realized in its fullness. We long for that day when it will fully come. But that is our status. That is our inheritance. The Egyptian or the, the Israelites rather were enslaved by the Egyptians 400 years making bricks, cruel, without hope. They hoped, but they were really with... Imagine 400 years and things don't change. God raised up a deliverer. But He Himself was only a shadow and a type of the great deliverer who would come to save His people, not from making bricks, but would save His people from their own demise, their sin. And in Israel's deliverance, God gave them a special meal called the Passover. Do you remember what it represented on that night that he delivered them? The final plague was going to come that would finally break Pharaoh's heart and get him to release the Israelites. The firstborn of everyone would be, their life would be taken. But God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb without blemish and take the blood of that lamb and paint it across the doorposts and along the door frames so that when the angel of death would come, he would see that blood and he would pass over the homes of those people and spare the firstborn. And that table that they ate at as the Passover is still practiced by Jews today because it points back. It points back to a salvation that was pointing forward. And the hope that they have that, unfortunately, so many Jews still hope for and don't know the realization that Christ is their Messiah. It was at this same table, many years later, that Jesus had his disciples, a Passover meal that he set before them. And when he took the bread, he broke it. But he said something different. He said, this is my body broken for you. The bread that had been broken for centuries, it meant several things. One, the bread then didn't have yeast in it. It was really flat. Because they had to leave so quickly, there was no time for the yeast to rise. So it was a bread of poverty, and it was to remind them of their enslavement. But the breaking of the bread also symbolized the parting of the Red Sea and how God delivered them. But Jesus said something different. He said something more. He said, this is my body that's broken. This will deliver you in a way that they couldn't even imagine that night. In the same way, He also took the wine as would have been poured in every Passover meal. But he said, this blood is the new covenant. This new covenant that had been promised in Jeremiah 31, that God said, I will establish a new covenant. Jesus is now saying before his disciples, that day is being realized. Jeremiah said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for this is the covenant I will make 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their sins and remember their iniquity, and their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That forgiveness, that promise of the new covenant, is what's pictured here in this table today. And this table is for all who believe in Christ to come and to be fed and to be nourished by His body and His blood broken and spilled out on our behalf. What pointed forward to a great salvation, we now look at a table that we remember that points backward to the salvation that's been accomplished. And yet, it also points forward as well because it points forward to a heavenly feast when that new kingdom that you and I have been given in that inheritance because of the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ will be known and will be fully ours. So let's take a moment now and prepare our hearts in silent prayer to come to the table.